Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner, and I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know, because I care about people who care about cats and dogs. That's what this show is all about, combing the world to find authors and experts to talk about cats and dogs and sometimes other creatures who share our world. I've been having these conversations for an hour every week on Long Island's only NPR station, 88.3 WLIW-FM, which is where I originated this show and have not missed a week for 14 years. There's a podcast library with all 750-plus shows at RadioPetLady.com, along with my other pet talk shows, including Cat Chat and Good Dogs, The Training Show. Feel free to write me at radiopetlady at gmail.com with questions or suggestions. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. This show is made possible in part with the support of Waruva, a family-owned pet food company that makes high-protein foods for cats and dogs. And the show is also brought to you by Dr. Elsie's Precious Cat, a privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie a feline-only veterinarian. My guests today are Jonathan Balcom, a world-renowned expert in animal sentience, particularly about fishes, about which he's written extensively. Cindy Dunstan Quirk will be here. She is the founder of the woman-powered Scout and Zoes that makes treats from very strange things like carp eyeballs and black soldier fly larvae. And chemopokina Pokini will be here from Salt Lake City, where he started the nonprofit Rough Haven Crisis Sheltering. It is a great pleasure and privilege to have Jonathan Balcom back on the show. He's one of the really great lights in the world of animal understanding, if that's the right word. He's a biologist who has a PhD in ethology, the study of animal behavior. He has also written four popular science books on the inner lives of animals, including Pleasurable Kingdom, Second Nature, and one of my favorites, What a Fish Knows, The Inner Lives of Our Underwater Cousins, which he's been on the show to discuss. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming back. What what I've been thinking about recently is the concept seems to suddenly have sprung full-blown from Athena's head or something, or Zeus's head, however that worked, that, wow, animals have feelings, insects have feelings, fish have feelings. And this has been something you have been studying and very serious about probably since you were born in England, raised in New Zealand and Canada, and you've lived in the U.S. since 1987. Are you grateful and relieved that the world, other PhDs, other smart, interesting people, maybe even uh, just regular citizens, are catching up to this idea? Or do you think, gosh, where were you guys 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? Where, where do you fall in your emotional spectrum about this? I think both those things, uh, it, it, it amazes me how long it's taken for us to, as a species, to really take seriously the inner lives of other animals. But at the same time, I'm extremely excited and energized by the new scientific interest in what animals are thinking and feeling. And of course, beyond science, just the public's interest. Yes. It's a very exciting time to be an ethologist um, because uh, there's a lot of really interesting and exciting science coming out because scientists are 
are asking the right kind of questions, questions that were taboo for much of the 20th century. Right. The idea that they had feelings, that they had emotions, that they had an IQ, not measurable by our ridiculous IQ scale that apparently isn't even useful for humans in a general sense, but certainly to, to always judge all other forms of life compared to humans as being some high bar, I'm sure has always rankled you. I I also want to point out some of the extraordinary intellectual pursuits you've had as the Department Chair for Animal Studies with Humane Society University and Director of Animal Sentience with the Humane Society Institute for Science and Policy and Associate Editor for the journal Animal Sentience, where you teach a course in animal sentience. So, the rest of us think, really, there's a journal called Animal Sentience? Yeah, with lots of really smart people writing and being edited by Jonathan. How do you get an, a publication like that to reach more regular people? I think there is an appetite and an interest in regular people who don't have letters after their name. How can we do that? Because I think the work you do and the thoughts you think are very illuminating and inspiring to the rest of us, but we need to know what they are. It's a good question. I mean, uh, the, the the world of academic journals is quite rarefied, and and most lay readers don't don't go there. Although I'm happy to say that the the brilliant editor uh, Stephen Harned of of the journal Animal Sentience encourages the the authors to submit work that's very readable to nice. an audience beyond scientists. Yeah, I think that's really important. Uh, I do my bit by uh, writing and speaking. Uh, about animals in a, in a lay reader friendly way. You know, my books are tailored not to scientists per se, although I certainly hope scientists will read them, uh, but more to non-scientists. I think it's very, very important to bridge that gap between the scientific world and the lay reader world. And scientific journals are good as far as they go, but, you know, they're filled with jargon and difficult to interpret charts and graphs. And it's important to to translate that to uh, the lay people in the world who really are the engine of the world. They're the people who make the world go. So uh, we must bridge that gap. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because I think all of your writing is very accessible. But then again, when someone says, oh, a PhD in ethology, oh, I'm already scared. I'm not sure what ethology is. Is that like a form of dentistry? You know, I mean, there's those fancy words that have to do with the the higher strata of learning and and, and getting degrees that can be intimidating to people, but the work you do is all about bridging the gap between us and animals. So now we have to bridge the gap between the very smart thinkers with brains that barely can fit in their head and the rest of us that could be any amount of smart or dumb, but mostly we have emotion. And I think a lot of what you have been studying is about the emotion and the inner lives of animals, including fish, including your your new book, which we'll talk about next time you come on, about flies, which is pretty amazing. Uh, that's for the next conversation. But the idea that we can be emotional on behalf of animals, I guess call it empathy, and animals includes fish, which you very, in your book that I adore, is like, fish are not all one thing, people. And then there's that great documentary about the octopus and you just think, oh God, I've never really stopped to think about all the forms of life that are feeling and caring and aren't we just so thick-headed. I want to talk about the Animal Equality UK group that you co-signed a letter that changed the way aquaculture 
fish factory farming is done. Can you talk about that? That's a perfect example of engaging the public in making life better for animals, even if we're going to eat them. Sure. Uh, yeah, that word ac- aquaculture, it's, it's a lovely sound to it. I mean, aqua, water, and culture. <laughs> it's a lovely sound, you know, and, and it, it lulls us into, into complacency, thinking, oh, what a lovely thing. But actually, if you look at aquaculture, it's essentially factory farming of fishes. I mean, either in sea pens in oceans where the fishes are crowded into sea pens and there's all kinds of ecological harms that come from that, or in, in, in inland facilities, um, I've served as an, an expert uh, witness for several undercover investigations of agriculture operations in places like uh, Israel and Italy or the U.S., and uh, the conditions are pretty darn awful for the fish, as they are in other factory farm situations. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to lend my voice of expertise as far as it goes to try to, A, draw attention to these problems, and B, hopefully galvanize the energy, the, the efforts of, of people in power, legislators and what have you, to get change for these things because um, they, they are, until, until the laws are changed, then these companies can continue to do what they're doing. Also, of course, an important step of that is to get the public informed, the consuming public, because ultimately yes. uh, in a supply and demand economy that we live in, as long as there's demand, humans will come up with a way to supply and meet that demand. And as long as those who have money in their pocketbook are going to spend it, if they become aware, awakened to what is going on on the other side of the money they're spending, then they can choose to spend differently, which is how organic farming and organic produce became something that was in the economy because people began to be alarmed about pesticides and runoff into fields. But if the people buying the vegetables and the fruits didn't care, it would never have changed. The people who call themselves vegetarians, and I don't mean that in any pejorative way, but they're fishitarians, pescatarians, they eat fish, and they think that that's higher-minded, finer, uh, less cruel. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen in aquaculture? Not to say that people shouldn't eat fish, but, but if a, le- a letter that you co-sign is printed in the Sunday Times, and a government source in the UK said as a result that new welfare measures would be introduced, we can do that anywhere in the world. If if the veil of secrecy, if we demand to know what's going on, first we have to demand it, then they have to show us or tell us, and then we have to have people like you, who are the guardians, be there to witness it, and then to tell us what you saw. So give us some ideas of not only what you've seen, in aquaculture, which is not high-minded culture, and what we might do to help change it wherever we're getting our fish from. Well, just to back up a, a tad to what you said earlier, it's very important. You know, words are cheap and easy to say. It's important that we hold the feet to the flame yes. of those who are we will change the rules, we will change things. We're taking a close look at this. We need to keep them the pressure on for them to do that. The sorts of things that I've seen in aquaculture are uh, are, are well known among those who are concerned about it. And, and again, it doesn't include the layperson. Most people don't know, and they don't know what's going on. It's very important for, for certain pe- people to document this and make it available to people. Um, crowding, you know, dense, dense numbers of fishes, you know, hundreds of thousands in one small tank. Um, the conditions of the water. I've seen I've seen film in which the water sometimes looks very bubbly. It looks chemically. Uh, there are there are 
there are antibiotics and, and pesticides used in these operations. The temperature varies. Uh, rough handling, they're transferred willy-nilly from one pond to another by sh through chutes, which are rough, and fish get stuck in them, and they suffocate, and they get injuries. Um, I've seen fishes literally just being poured out and dumped onto the ground, walked over uh, as if they were just blocks of wood. Mm -hmm. So there's also just outright abject cruelty and, and indifference. So these are the sorts of things that go on. There's another point I want to make as an ethologist, and that is that animals like us, we value our autonomy. They value their autonomy. To deprive them yes. of the, to do the things they would normally do in nature, to migrate, to choose mates, to choose and find the food they would normally eat. Animals will actually prefer to search for food if you give them the opportunity than to take food that's readily available, especially given that the food that's fed them is often not the kind of thing they really want to eat. So that's just another, perhaps more nuanced problem with this stuff. But, but the animals really value having the autonomy to do what they want to do, and they really suffer and fail to thrive when that's taken away. It's a, it's a great point. The idea of freedom, I've, I've been talking about it a lot in terms of pet animals and the fact that we don't give our dogs and cats. It, it's my sort of goal for 2022 is to keep us, keep awareness in the front of our faces that dogs need choices of when, where, and how to eat, to walk, to sniff, to lie down, where to lie down, how to lie down. Cats need things to do and a different way to eat that's more natural. And in terms of the animals that we are consuming, we need to have some empathy, some kind of moral code of some kind toward them as well. And factory farming in terms of cattle was well not well known or understood or even cared about. But of course, 50, 80 years ago, it didn't look like what it looks like now in terms of crowding. And they didn't have to grow fish in these pens where their dead mates are in the, the disgusting water with them. And it's all sort of treated as one, as you said, unfeeling, uncaring, unknowing mass. As the world has wanted more food and there's more people, we have to have more awareness of what we're doing to these animals because we have a choice. We have a choice. Right. We can do it better. We can do it differently. We just have to make that choice. And if it means paying a dollar more a pound, then we have to do that or eat less of it and still pay the dollar more a pound so they can live better. I mean, isn't that yeah. sort of what we're hoping is a direction we can urge ourselves to go in? Well, I'm always urging that. I'm always urging, uh, encouraging people to take a look at their own lifestyle choices. I mean, the, the food that we choose to eat is, is, on the one hand, extremely pivotal in terms of how the not just how the welfare of animals proceeds, but how the welfare of the planet proceeds. Yes. Growingly aware, finally, that uh, animal agriculture is a huge contributor to climate change and global warming, which in in itself is now really affecting us with terrible weather events and and, and this this sort of thing. So um, there there is kind of a, a growing consciousness globally that food choices are really important, not just for for animals but also for the planet, which in turn means for for us as well. The pandemic we're we're still in the middle of, you know, is is linked to animal agriculture in terms of its origin. So um, and then and then a whole other aspect here is, uh, and this is what I tried to tap into with my own work, is the what the science shows about the animal's capacities. I mean, yes. uh, the, the things that fishes are capable of, uh, they, they, they fully belong with mammals and birds and, mm -hmm. uh, and the other 
full members. I mean, given that they have things like observational learning, referential communication, mem long-term memory, individual recognition, self-awareness, planning, culture. Oh, you give me chills. You give me chills. But this goes on. So they're, 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 they're a very accomplished group of animals. I, I, and you are their spokesperson. You're the only person who's ever said, don't call it fish. Fish isn't one thing. They're fishes. There are many different kinds of creatures. I do hope that people will find a copy of What a Fish Knows, The Inner Lives of Our Underwater Cousins. It really sets the stage for a different way of looking at other creatures in the world. Before we finish, there's something also that I read on your website, which was fascinating. Never had it even occurred to me. It's amazing how somebody who thinks she's like, oh, I'm going to pay a lot of attention to this and make sure everyone else does too. The pro-animal, the, the charities that provide animals as gift to poor communities. Now, once someone gave me a gift, rather than it being a gift, it was, look, we gave a goat to this little village in Africa. Can you talk about why that isn't the best thing to do for the village in Africa or for the goat? <laughs> well, certainly not for the goat. Uh, usually, the end, the end, the end, uh, the line for the goat is going to be being made into meat. Um, the goat may be milked in the meantime, but milking often is problematic because uh, it usually means that the the goat's baby is taken away. You know, in small communities, yes. uh, that may not be the case. Perhaps the goat gets the keeper baby, and the milk is shared. But by and large, when humans are after a byproduct of an animal. We take it all. We don't share it with, with the other animals. Um, you know, I, I, I think of Jane Goodall here with her brilliant Roots and Shoots program. And her, her approach is to get communities to um, grow their own food and to, be, and to be autonomous that way. And, you know, autonomy and self-control and self-involvement is the, is the root to concern because if people... If people um, are growing their own food, then they care about the local environment. If they're just growing right. cash crop for it, that's, that's uh, not something that's suitable or something that, that gets them – it doesn't get them involved with the planet the way, the way it does when, you're growing, when they're growing their own food. So autonomy of, of communities. Um, you know, if the, animal, if the animal has a good quality of life, uh, that's, that's one thing, but um, – so often uh, when you have people growing animals and having animals, uh, it, it ends up being an exploited situation. So I'm not an expert on the whole the whole animal gifting thing, but it, it kind of reinforces the whole animal agriculture approach. And we really should be encouraging people to move away from that. I'm very encouraged that plant-based is a phrase that is becoming more and more uh, prominent here, in certainly in, in Western society. Uh, if I watch a sporting event on TV, I see ads for plant-based milks. I see yes. ads for a new plant-based chicken at KFC and, and this sort of thing. I mean, there's quite a revolution happening now. And we do need to move towards more plant-based because animal agriculture is a scourge. There's no better word for it. It's really problematic. Here's a, here's a quick number from The Guardian. Okay. Animal agriculture globally uses 80% of the farmland to produce about 18% of calories. That's a lot about its inefficiency. We need soybeans. Come on. <laughs> I mean, I'm, 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 I'm boiling it down to one easy thing, but we need protein. I mean, we know that the insect culture, the culture of growing insects in various ways, is now being used heartily for, for animal food, particularly dogs. It's only going to be a short leap. Until people, once they're feeding crickets and black soldier fly larvae and so forth to their animals, they'll get more comfortable with it. 
and realize it's not as creepy as they want to think it might be and eventually maybe become less uh, kind of, I don't know, squeamish about it and consider it for humans. But of course, we don't have to eat insects yet. We can eat plants and they can be grown in a way that encourages them to have lots of protein for us and lots of amino acids and and learn how to eat the way poor Central and South American com- countries have always eaten. You eat rice, beans, and a bit of dairy, and it's a complete protein, just as good as a slab of meat and much better for you and for the environment. But no one is taught that, right? So they think, oh, beans have protein, but actually they don't. So if you want to sustain human life, you do have to complete the amino acids profile. I only know because years ago before it was animals, it was pregnancy and childbirth was the thing I delved into. And pregnant women need a massive amount of protein. You couldn't eat enough chicken. But if you mix other things together, it all winds up to be protein. But educating people to that is important. We don't educate our next generation about nutrition at all, do we? Uh, certainly not much, and, and, me- and medical doctors in their training, it's notoriously received on average. I think it's typically been about two hours of nutritional training. That is beginning to change, too. Um, certainly there are a growing number of, of medical doctors who choose nutrition and health and so-called lifestyle medicine as an approach. Uh, a good friend of mine, a radiologist in New York, um, he focuses now on what's called lifestyle, lifestyle medicine. Where really? Instead of... Yeah, the, the idea here is that you educate yourself or you get educated about the things you can do in your personal life choices and in particular the food you eat to not just look for cures or to treat yourself, but to prevent uh, the, you know, the diseases of affluence, the, the heart disease, you know, strokes and that sort of thing. Um, diet plays a huge role in that. And so people like Ted Barnett, my friend in, in New York, as I mentioned, you know, he's, he's one of the pioneers and the leaders of this approach. Neil Barnard with the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. You know, lifestyle medicine, preventative approaches, plant, primarily through plant-based eating. You know, these, these doctors aren't mincing words. Uh, they are telling people that you need to eat lower on the food chain for greater health. And it's not just words. It's supported by reams and reams of academic studies that are presented by these organizations and made available to the public. And worst case scenario, which isn't worst case, if you must have the taste of beef or chicken because it's what you're used to and what you feel somehow entitled to in the Western world, we can give you that made of plants. So we can give you that feeling in your mouth and that taste to your taste buds. But but it's going to still be a plant-based diet. And, you know, I, when they first came out with it in Burger King and now KFC, I didn't even know, people couldn't get enough of it. And it was more expensive even sometimes, but they liked it. They wanted it. So it's good. People are getting, uh, their their consciousness is getting raised, but we also have to work with them and not be punitive and tell them, oh, you're eating fish. You're being so cruel. No one should eat a shrimp. There's yeah, carrot. There, Carrots more convincing than the stick, right? Yes, the, uh, absolutely, the absolutely. And and coat the carrot in a way that it seems to be a, a hunk of whatever it is that you think you should have that used to be a living creature. Jonathan Balcom, it is such a pleasure to have you here. I can't wait to read Superfly and have you come back and talk about your delving into the inner lives of flies and the outer lives of flies. Wow, that's 
Amazing. In the meantime, What a Fish Knows, The Inner Lives of Our Underwater Cousins, and your other books, Second Nature and Pleasurable Kingdom, are all reading that I cannot say enough to people to read it, just to make you a better human being, because I think, Jonathan, that's what you do for us. If we listen, you can make us better people. Thank you so much for your lifetime of work. Thank you, Tracy. This show is supported by Earth Animal, holistic pet wellness products, privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein. This show is also sponsored by the two women who privately own Evermore Pet Food, where they cook dog food and ship it frozen in pouches directly to your home. Well, I just got to tell you, a hoot and a half, I'm, I'm reading pet industry magazines and thinking about all the good things that are happening in the pet world. And I come upon this full page ad in a pet industry magazine that says, Superfly, not too weird. And I think, wait a minute, I think I love this. This has got a sense of humor. It's odd. It's strange. Is this something made of the new black soldier fly larva that's all the rage in the pet industry? And oh yeah, it is. But it's part of a company that has been flying right above the radar all these years called Scout and Zoe's. And I never really paid enough attention until I discovered a truly amazing woman behind a truly amazing company. And you guys know I am all about woman-powered, woman-owned, no venture capital, no big uh, pharma money behind things that, that are personalized. So Cindy Dunson Quirk, with all that blah, blah as an intro, Welcome to the show. Congratulations on having been and being the person who is Scout and Zoe's and has made some of the most mind-boggling, hello dog, mind-boggling <laughs> treats and other food items for dogs and cats that I've ever seen. You're, as you say, we're, n- we're not a wholly owned subsidiary of an international mega corporation. We're me, Cindy. So it's, it's really great to meet a me. I, I'm all about me's in the pet world. I love people who do something because they had a passion to create it and then they didn't sell it to somebody else and, you know, go off to Costa Rica to wander in the mountains or whatever people do when they want to leave leave the fast lane. I think what you're, you've, you've done and continue to do is really extraordinary. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's nice to be here today. Well, one of the things that you do, besides making incredibly strange and wondrous and you can say not too weird, but Cindy, I got to tell you, carp <laughs> eyeballs, okay, that's really weird. And I know it's really <laughs> nutritious, but we are going to have to talk about your product called eye candy. Boy, you have some sense of humor. But above and beyond <laughs> the products, which I want to go into, I, I just want to say there's two parts of the way you have created your company that kind of choke me up for the goodness of them. One is that all of the CARP products are packaged by intellectually disabled people at the Hopewell Center in Anderson, Indiana. So that's just like this little quiet nugget of goodness in your world. And then fish on a mission are made in a faculty facility. I just my own notes, so I say this correctly, operated by a second chance employer. Now, I read that and I know what you mean. People whose lives went off the rails and nobody gives them a second chance. Often right. people with a prison record. And so these are choices you've made to make the world a better place, not just, wow, I want my really privileged dog to have really privileged food and treats. At what point did you realize you had this way to positively influence the human world that you will also inhabit? 
I would love to tell you that it was all by perfect design uh, that I intentionally did that, but it wasn't. It was all very happenstance, um, just like the creation of the company where <clears throat> Zoe had allergies and I try to find a way to solve those mm-hmm. for her to have something to chew on. And with Hopewell, they just happen to be here in our town. Um, the labor is here. They they do work for other companies. And it was um, a way to give back to the community and a way to teach people job skills so that they can live life on their own. Nice. And um, not have to rely on other people. And then with the second chance employer, that just kind of aligned where, you know, I found the fish um, processing facility and she just very candidly offhand said, um, well, you know, we're a second chance employer. And it was just this wonderful alignment of everything that I wanted to do because we always do good for the pet the earth and the community with everything that we do. Those are our three pillars that we stand on all the time and everything just kind of perfectly aligned. It's like, Oh, well, there's some symmetry there and everything is just as it should be. Well, what's really lovely is you can say it just happened. And I guess it's lucky you live in Indiana where there's only nice people. I I play pickleball with a man (laughs) from Indiana. So I've decided that everyone in Indiana is nice. I know that's totally ridiculous, but there's just parts of America that the rest of us, probably haven't lived in or even been near. And I just think there just must be all kinds of places where people are just doing good things because it's just as easy as doing something neutral or bad. You know, it's 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 not that hard to reach across some aisle or other and make somebody else's no, life it's better. Not. It's not that hard. It's not, it's not hard at all if you just kind of dig a little yes. bit and, and say, okay, well, um, what what can I do to make the world a better place? You don't really have to go far past your own doorstep to, well to figure something out. And with the Hopewell Center, they actually, way back when, it was um, uh, formed by friends of ours uh, whose son uh, was a Down syndrome baby and uh, as a place to teach uh, for some respite care and also to teach the, the uh, clients, as they're called, um, other things like motor skills and job skills. And it's just this wonderful facility here that we have in our town that makes a difference every day in numerous people's lives. And I, I, I mean, what's not to love about that? Exactly. And what's not to love about a company that embraces that and that trickle up, trickle down is happening all through Scout and Zoe's. I think that there also your products are so original and unique and good for the planet and good for the animals and nutritious and, you know, light carbon footprint and stuff, that it's not that you're just making another dog biscuit. But even if you were just making another dog biscuit, how great that people can learn about a company. That's what I sort of see my mission as, being the bridge between mm-hmm. providers and consumers or creators and and uh, in, in, in jesters, that mm-hmm. you can make the choice in where you give your business by choosing companies that are genuinely good through and through, which isn't Absolutely. to say that there's I mean, any bad actors in the pet space. I don't think there are, but there are some that are more corporate and some that are more distanced from the humanity that you would love to see in everyday life and that we have to celebrate more. We it's we need to just celebrate those that sweetness that can happen between people while doing good things for pets. And I just want people to realize that those choices make a difference. 
you kind of absolutely you know so i i love what you're doing but i want people to Thank also you. know about it and love it and not just go get a carp eyeball for your cat or dog because oh yum but we will talk about that in a minute but also because <laughs> just doing that is such a passive way to do good there are ways to do good right. simply by making right. – you don't have to go to all the trouble that Cindy went to of finding these marvelous places, which you claim wasn't trouble, but everything takes a certain amount of energy. It, it's very nice to know that that we can make – we can do good deeds in simple ways, simply by a choice of where we spend our time or our money or our energy, whether it's volunteering or purchasing or what have you. All right. Let's talk about Superfly. That okay. is, I mean, okay, so I'm aware that insect proteins are filtering into the world and seem to be starting in the pet industry. What is it with black soldier fly larvae that sounds, at least to me, kind of yucky, but is clearly like this really fine ingredient? Why is that well, such an important people, ingredient? It's it's important because um, we're running out of land, or actually they're not making any more land. You know, the earth as we know it is a finite Commodity. Good point. Good point. So they're not making any more land. So the wonderful thing about black soldier flies is that they can be raised vertically. So on 300 acres or the, the acreage that it would take to raise 300 heads of cattle, you can raise billions of black soldier flies because you have the vertical to go. Yes. They consume less. They don't consume any more water than it takes for, you know, than they get out of the fruits and vegetables that they eat that are meant for the landfill. They don't have the gaseous emissions that cattle would, so it protects the ozone layer. And a black soldier fly larva um, contains not only just a lot of protein, but it also has lauric acid and amino acids and, and things that are really beneficial to the pet. So it's it's a wonderful, sustainable protein that, once again, is good for the pet, good for the earth, and because we're cleaning up and not sending things for to the landfill, also good for communities because they don't have to worry about the landfills being overrun. Well, that's a very good description. I'm just wondering when historically, way back historically, did humans eat larvae? Did they eat bug larvae? Was there a time? I'm not saying this is your... I'm sure that there were. There must be, right? Have to. And if you think about Yule Gibbons, you know, he, he ate parts of trees and right. uh, a lot of people do eat chocolate covered ants and yes, they do. chocolate covered grasshoppers and insect proteins are the wave of the future because it takes so much land to raise the um, cattle and the fowl and the poultry that and the swine that we're all consuming. So um, at some point, the human population is going to have to tap out on the <laughs> the traditional proteins and move to something that's a little bit more sustainable. And uh, insects are a way to do that, whether it's crickets or black soldier fly larva or whatever. Um, it's This is the movement to, to more sustainable proteins. When you realize this in your own life and especially in your own business, how did you go about accessing enough of the larva and then making it tasty enough or to answer the second part of it, is black soldier fly larva just naturally tasty to a dog or cat or do you have to do something to it? Well, we always put a lot of love into whatever we do. <laughs> so yes, we do we do alter it with love. But the the way this started was um a couple of summers ago, so it's about three summers ago now. Um, my, we, we had about 12 sets of bluebirds in our backyard 
And every time I would feed the bluebirds um, the mealworms, the dogs would hang around underneath the feeders oh. for whatever were on the ground. And mm-hmm. it's like, hmm, that's pretty interesting. So I started looking for wholesale mealworms and I couldn't find them. And so I was going to Global Pet Expo, which is a, a big industry. Yep. Um, trade show in Florida looking for wholesale mealworms. And I was talking to a friend of mine and he said, well, you know, those aren't approved for use in dog and cat treats. And I thought, well, crap, you know, that's, that's really too bad because that would make a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and I know the dogs love them. And, and if you watch your dog outside or your cat, they forage. So they're eating bugs anyway yes. and other stuff that we don't want to talk about. So, um, <laughs> The, the, the 10,000 of, of fit story of this is that um, I found, I, I didn't do the mealworms, but I came upon the thought that black soldier fly larvae was going to be approved for usage in um, dog treats. And so I jumped on that uh, way before everybody else did, because um, we started bringing our black soldier fly jerky out in December of 2020 way before it was approved. And um, then we debuted it in Super Zoo for, uh, and it had just been approved for usage in dogs the week before that trade show in Las Vegas. But the the way that that product is made is that it's, uh, we have just enough ingredients in there to bind the jerky together so it holds and it stays in transit. You know, it's a good, right. nice looking piece of jerky, but not too many ingredients that you have. It's not full of fillers or additives or that stuff that you don't know what it is. But then we also sell the ground up larva, the dried larva for a food topper. And then we sell the bugs too, the dried bugs, um, the larva. And we don't have any dogs or cats rejecting them because they all eat bugs anyway. So they naturally just like the taste of them. And we really don't have to amend it in any form. Interesting. But with the jerky, we have to include other ingredients to help it bind. To make it be a jerky that you can gnaw on Correct. if you're a gnawing kind of animal. You've also Correct. taken the invasive Asian carp, which now people realize is an ecological disaster. And you're Correct. turning everything from its eyeballs to its skin to its guts to its flesh in all kinds of, as you call it, carpious maximus things for dogs and cats to chew on and to enjoy. When did you settle on eyeballs? Was it on Halloween? Um, no, uh-uh. it was, um, you know, that that is one of those things too that just came to me in that dreamy state before I fall asleep yes. or, you know, as I'm right. standing in the shower. It's where my sparks of inspiration come for some reason. And that... I'm not sure how I capitalized on it's like, you know, or came to the idea that we should use all of the organs. Right. Because they're Mm -hmm. they're rich in protein. The eyeballs have more retina or because of the retina, they have more uh, protein than um, other parts of the the fish do. Wow. The carp as a whole have more uh, uh, omega fatty three acids than salmon. Really? Highly nutritious. Yes. And nobody else was doing this. So we've been first to market with the Asian carp products. And we've also been first to market with the black soldier fly. So that's pretty incredible considering how Mm -hmm. big your your scientific staff is, you in the shower. (laughs) You know, I think (laughs) it's what I love about 
this company is that you have an idea and you simply say, well, why not? You have an idea and instead of saying, well, you know, I can think of a hundred reasons why not, you say, but why not? And you do it. I think that you're a great inspiration to other women entrepreneurs. And I hope that people will absorb your message that you can do good on the ground with other humans and invent, actually invent niches and products and categories. And just mm -hmm. let your yeah. let, let your imagination be like a child's imagination. Don't tell yourself why you can't do something. Tell yourself why not. It seems to me what scouts yeah, always it, seems to be. You yeah, if not you, when and yes, who? Yes, yes. You know, exactly. If, if we don't do it, you you just need to always have that um, childlike wonder yes, and curiosity. Exactly. Especially as an entrepreneur, because if to bring two new, not just one product, but two new products to the pet industry that had not been done before, that's pretty. That's pretty outstanding. It's astounding. Are I huge mean, feathers. you've won awards, but also I just think the 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 imagination the. To create something where there wasn't anything is quite an amazing accomplishment. We've run out of time, Cindy, but I know you're going to go on and on with more amazing, not too <laughs> weird, but maybe a little weird things to feed dogs and cats that will make them well and happy and be good for the planet. I really admire you. Keep on keeping on. You're doing something really good on so many levels. Thanks a bunch. I appreciate it. This show is brought to you in part by Merrick Pet Care, which began as a family-run company in Texas 30 years ago, where they are still making natural pet food. They also provide nutrition to pet shelters in Chicago and Texas and the national nonprofit Canines for Warriors. This is really fun to talk to a man with such a fascinating background that has wound us up in the same place around dogs and cats. Kimo Pokini has such an amazing life story that is in one of the wonderful mutual rescue films called Kimo and Jazz about his dog. But he's also created in Utah Rough Haven Crisis Sheltering, which to me is one of the coolest nonprofit ideas I've ever heard. Kimo, congratulations for having created Rough Haven, but also for having had the courage to talk about your life story and, and how your dog helped you to become more of the man you are. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Tracy, for having me. I guess to grow up in Hawaii with your father <laughs> being a fire dancer, I read that and I'm like, <laughs> did I read that right? So he's a Hawaiian yeah. fire dancer, but wait, are there any other kind of fire dancers or are they all Hawaiian? <laughs> and then your name is so fabulous. Kimo Pokini is like, wow, this is just so exotic. Did it seem exotic <laughs> growing up with a fire dancer for a father or was that just a normal thing in Hawaii? You know, I mean, I, I think it was a little weird. Um, you know, folk dances in Hawaii and in Polynesia are, are pretty common. And, you know, we're pretty proud of our culture there yes. and back in Hawaii. Yes. But, you know, to have a dad who's an actual fire knife dancer isn't typical. So I think <laughs> that, uh, you know, I was I was half really proud of him and half like this is just the weirdest thing. I didn't know how to exp even yes. explain it to my friends. You yes. know, so. Yeah, it wasn't go to your job and and punch a clock from nine to five. That was for that was for sure. And is Definitely it, not. and Jazz was from a shelter there, or when you came to the mainland? She, I got her from Humane Society of Utah, so you know, it was all here in, in Salt Lake City. 
And how did you wind up in Salt Lake City as I don't this I'm <laughs> asking you this question in complete ignorance, but one of the <laughs> parts of the no really about Utah and about Mormons. Um, mm -hmm. One of the parts of your story, Mutual Rescue, is that you came out as gay and that was a really big problem with your father, but that the dog mm -hmm. helped bridge that communication gap and you took care of him for the whole rest of his life. You looked after him physically. But I thought yeah. that you – again, I say this in complete ignorance and apologies to anyone I'm offending. No. <laughs> but I thought that the Mormon church, like beyond looked down, excommunicated gay people and – some very big billionaire just gave a whole left the church and left a whole lot of money because yeah. he's gay and it's like what's the story with utah and gay people is it all good or all bad <laughs> <laughs> well what's interesting is that in the movie i never uh explicitly say that it that it is the lds or mormon church and i did that purposely just because i think that even though my experience obviously is with, with the mormon faith um and growing up gay and how hard that was for me and blah 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 it, right I think that there's a more universal message there, you know, for people that for kids that grow up, whether it's a religion or philosophy or, you know, they're 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 growing up their environment. And all of that can really come down on a kid who's gay and make yes. them feel like they're other or different. Yes. So, but but my personal story is that I did grow up Mormon, uh, even though I grew up in Hawaii, where there's a, a pretty good contingence of, uh, of uh, a Mormon population. Interesting. there. Interesting. Yeah. And then I moved to Utah to, to go to school. So I actually graduated with my undergraduate degree from Brigham Young University. Oh, I see. In because Utah. you were because you were Mormon. Exactly. So my, my journey just kind of continued over to Utah and it was in my last semester at, at Brigham Young that I was like, you know, I don't think this is gonna work out. So <laughs> I thought, you mean the thing I'm trying to pass in my head. Yeah, it, it just it just wasn't working out. And so I, I uh, just kind of finished out my last semester there, moved to Salt Lake City and then kind of resumed, uh, or I guess you should say, I could say, started a, a new life moving forward. Yes. Yeah. With jazz, with the dog. Yeah, with jazz. Jazz was um, a dog that I adopted from Humane Society of Utah. And she was just this shy, little, beautiful, brindled Dutch Shepherd mix that I didn't think was going to speak for the first like two or three months that I had her. She was just so, so, so shy. But she is the one that really helped me to to view my own self differently and then ultimately kind of find my own humanity and the humanity in others as well. Including your father. It's a wonderful yeah. story. And and as I say, brave and and brutally honest to tell it because th there has to be some discomfort in that. But I'm sure that you felt that it would be of value to others, people who felt excluded, um, excommunicated in their society, mm -hmm. whether it was religious or not. And the idea that an animal can help you come to terms with who you are because they accept, of course, us completely as we are. And it was great that you got that message from her. But then this huge leap to starting a nonprofit that's crisis sheltering, where you shelter the animals of people going through crises so their animals are safe and they feel okay about it while they're figuring out their life situation. That's a huge yeah. leap. It, I guess you can say that it's a huge leap, but I think that um, the underlying message, one of the underlying messages of, of the film 
is that, you know, in my case, I, I, I happened to be gay and I felt like I was different. I felt like I was other. I really felt like that dampened who I was as a kid. But I think that for so many other people who maybe aren't, don't identify as LGBTQ, that's okay. But there are a lot of people who are feeling different or other for, for lots of other Correct. reasons. Correct. Yep. And when I started doing some volunteer work with our unsheltered community, um, I saw a lot of that. People that felt like they were misunderstood. People that felt like they couldn't trust you. And I began to sort of make, connect the dots, even though our, our life situations and experiences were different. What we had in common was this feeling of, of being other, feeling other. But when I also noticed that a lot of the people that we were talking to had dogs and cats living out with them in, in the streets, it really made just the, 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 the wheels turn in my head to say, you know, there's something broader going on here. Everybody feels different in some way. And if you feel different and you don't feel like you have a voice, then you are basically powerless. Yes. So I wanted to bridge the gap there and use my love of animals as a way to connect with people. And then once I started connecting, I realized that they had a lot of struggles and issues and just weren't being heard. And so maybe it just took a little bit of time to sit down with somebody and understand where, where, where they're really coming from and what they're trying to achieve. So Rough Haven is not just for the animals, it's for the humans who are, I think the, the correct phrase these days is experiencing homelessness, which seems awfully obtuse. I like your, yeah. your I, I, it's like, oh, please just use real English. Unsheltered <laughs> is an extraordinary word that you just used because we in the animal welfare world think of shelters as being for animals. And when I'm trying to find mm. in, in cities across the country where when there isn't COVID, we're showing the dog and the cat film festival and there are mutual mm. rescue films in it. I look up shelters in Detroit and it mentions human shelters too. And you come mm. up short and you think, oh, there are people who need sheltering, not just animals. And I think yeah. that the realization of how many there are and the importance of their animals to them is pretty extraordinary. Does Rough Haven also offer services to the humans? Uh, well, you know, we like to say that we love both ends of the leash. And we think that by helping a pet, you're actually helping a person, especially a person who's experiencing some kind of crisis. So, you know, I, I view this as a humanitarian nonprofit organization that happens to do its work through helping pets. Nice. So what so yeah. what do you do? Do you actually do outreach or does the unsheltered human community just know that Rough Haven exists and they come to you? Is it to get veterinary care for their animals? It's, it's a good question. We are beginning to broaden our programming a little bit more, the more that we understand the need of, of our clients. But we help people who are experiencing homelessness, but we also uh, want to provide our services to those that who maybe are on the brink of some kind of disaster or even on the brink of homelessness. So for example, other crisis emergency situations that we help out with might include something like domestic violence, right. where you know the person is trying to leave that situation, but oftentimes the perpetrator will use threats or will even harm the animal Definitely. in an effort to mm -hmm. maintain control in that situation. Mm -hmm. So you know, what, what's left for that person to do, except sort of, you know, it, it makes it so much more difficult when you have a pet in that situation. So we, about 15% of our clients actually are in domestic violence situations that they're trying to escape. And so we will actually shelter or foster their animal while they're getting the help that they need, tap into their resources, find 
find a new place and then we'll reunite them. So that's one example of helping people um, before they start this downward spiral into homelessness. Uh, but unfortunately right now, about 60% of the people in the families that we help are, are, being, uh, are taking advantage of our services because of housing issues. And how bad is it in Salt Lake? Or do you think it's just terribly bad everywhere? <laughs> I don't really have a frame of reference for everywhere, but I know that it's getting worse in Salt Lake. Affordable housing is an issue. Um, you know, homelessness has been an issue in Salt Lake City in general uh, for as long as I've been aware of it. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to be, it, it, sometimes it doesn't seem like we're, we're getting a whole lot of answers or making a whole lot of progress. Although I will say that I do see some really positive steps and some progress that's being made in, in certain areas when it comes to addressing homelessness. I'm glad you see, you feel optimistic and see that. I, I guess it's just really hard from the outside to see X number of tens of billions, millions, hundred millions, whatever the number is, to build football stadiums in towns yeah, where then the uh, football team leaves. And you're like, okay, so how many housing units could that have filled? You know, it's, it's so heartbreaking, it's right? It's kind of crazy. It's, I mean, if you just want to be harsh and talk about it economically – to have people mm -hmm. out on the street is no good for anyone, obviously, primarily for the person on the street, but it can't mm -hmm. be good for anyone. So putting up, you know, low income, affordable, green housing and giving, mm -hmm. you know, well, it's so obvious. It isn't that expensive. It's much more costly mm -hmm. to deal with these encampments and the human misery yeah. and how great that you're there to be a safety net for the animals. And great if you yeah. could catch more of them before they go further down because the the less time you have being sheltered and being in some way in the system, the harder it is to get back into it, right? You exactly – you hit it exactly on the head. You know, once you – enter into homelessness, whatever that means. But once you kind of cross that line, it is so, so difficult to get back out of that situation. So that's one of the reasons why we wanted to uh, to, to put this uh, organization into place is because we knew that a lot of people were losing their animals because of situations that were largely outside of their control. Yes, and they yes. didn't have the income or the resources or sometimes the social network to help out. And uh, this is where we, we feel like we can fill that gap, hopefully reunite that pet together with their person, and they can kind of continue on with life. What you're doing is extraordinary, Kimo. We've run out of time, but you haven't run out of time, and you're helping people to not <laughs> run out of time. It's, it's tremendous what you're doing. I, I salute you for it. I look forward to the movie about you and Jazz being in the next dog film festival. It, it, it deserves a place of honor. Thank you so much. Keep on keeping your optimistic, helpful attitude. We need a whole lot more of that in this world. Tracy, you're awesome, and thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the guests as much as I did. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now.